we get these paradigms where we're looking at the world a certain way and it gets really comforting that the only way you, you grow and, and improve is to break out of those and start looking at things in new ways or at least being open to looking at things in new ways at all times and uh, I think the people in the world who've like written great works you know that have endured and people who have done amazing things and wrote amazing songs and and made amazing discoveries all had to get real comfortable with being honest with themselves and breaking out of uh, the mold. Hey, I'm Skylar, and you are listening to The Thread U.S. It's a social investigation podcast, providing a platform for curiosity-based conversations. We're talking to Americans from coast to coast as we search for the commonalities we can use to establish a culture representative of and empowering for every person that calls themselves an American. Thanks for listening. Okay, so Robert Kennedy, there is an American hero. On the day that Martin Luther King was shot, who, of course, is another American hero, Bobby was scheduled to give a talk in Indianapolis, which was a petri dish of racial tension in the late 60s. He was there to corral votes because he was running for president. He found out just before he would give this speech that Martin Luther King Jr. had just died. So instead of giving the speech that he had planned, he said, Ladies and gentlemen, I'm only going to talk to you just for a minute or so this evening because I have some very sad news for all of you. And I think uh, sad news for all of our fellow citizens and people who love peace all over the world. And that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee. Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. In this difficult day, in this difficult time for the United States, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. For those of you who are black, considering the evidence evidently is that there were white people who were responsible. You can be filled with bitterness and with hatred and a desire for revenge. We can move in that direction as a country in greater polarization. Black people amongst blacks and white amongst whites filled with hatred toward one another. 
or we can make an effort, as Martin Luther King did, to understand and to comprehend and replace that violence, that stain of bloodshed that is spread across our land with an effort to understand compassion and love. He rallied behind people who didn't have access to the right ears. But the truth is, he wasn't really always like that. In the early 60s, Bobby Kennedy urged the FBI to tap Martin Luther King's phone lines. He also ordered the CIA to assassinate Fidel Castro, Cuban's communist leader, and not really in acceptable ways. Encouraged some weird kind of torture along the way. Maybe something about a poison that would make his beard fall out. And then also maybe Botox in some cigars. I'm not really sure about those details, but look them up yourself. Very interesting stuff. Anyway, my point is, Robert Kennedy didn't always know what the right thing to do was. And if he did, he didn't always do it. But he did listen to other people's opinions. And when he realized he was wrong, he would shift gears. And he didn't hide from it or lie. He would face his wrongdoings honestly, openly, and clarify what his new direction and new intention was. Could this happen today? Does our polarized environment give us any room for reality checks? If our perspective does change, do we feel safer just going along with what we've always thought because we're afraid of being seen as a liar or a flip-flopper or a traitor? Now, I happen to have a lot of faith in us, but for those of you that feel a little bit skeptical, I also understand where you're coming from. But if the answer is no, and we don't believe that we are capable of changing our minds, why are we trying? At what point are we running the risk of becoming our own biggest obstacle? So anybody who puts my name in the internet is going to come up with a wealth of information about me being um, a white power skinhead for most of my life. So I definitely was. That is Brian James. Before we dive into his story, it's important to share why I chose to speak with him on this podcast. It's not because we agree, and it's certainly not because I believe that the voice of white supremacy needs yet another platform to be shared on. A few months ago, my good friend Tori shared an exercise with me that she had learned from Rachel Cargill. Rachel Cargill is a writer and a lecturer, a black female American who is making incredible strides towards a more educated and socially just country for us all to live in. Consider for a moment Anyone in your life that you are not willing to have a conversation with about race, then write those names down on a piece of paper and next to them, draw a line. That line is where you decide that you are done being an ally. I am a white woman living in the United States with privileges that I'm constantly learning more about. 
This conversation with Brian is my duty as an ally to my friends, to my neighbors, to the people that I don't know in this country who have been marginalized for centuries. It's the job of those who don't know what the threat of white supremacy actually feels like to question and discuss what needs to change about it with those who create it, enable it, act with it, or empower it. This conversation is also my job as an American who grew up in an environment that led me to believe that everybody really does have equal opportunity here. Maybe that sounds like an excuse, but excuse or not, it was my reality. I can continue to perpetuate this state of ignorance by remaining in my echo chamber, by choosing to limit my conversations to those who I share the same values with, those that refer to the same news media outlets that I do, who share the same understanding of how we got here in the first place. Because the people that we don't agree with took a very different path. Both their nature and their nurture are different. The way I see it, we've got two options. We can resent that, or we can try to understand it in order to learn from it and make sure that moving forward, we're setting up the next generations to live in a country where those toxic environments are fewer and farther between. I have to believe that we weren't born this way. We were built this way. And I'm not ready to give up building just because it's the way that it's always been. I'm not willing to believe that white privilege will continue to blind us from the vibrancy of color in this country just because it always has. So I'm gonna do my job and I'm going to see to it that I'm opening doors for that opportunity instead of closing them off because I'm afraid of having a conversation. I don't respect the history of violence and oppression that Brian's associated with, but I do respect that he wants a different trajectory moving forward, and I believe that he's capable of it. I moved from a small, rural, all-white town to the city to a school that was about 80% black, a high school. When I got to that school, I didn't like what I saw. I didn't like the way people who looked like me were being treated. I didn't like the way that the staff, um, who was mostly all not white as well, was dealing with it. There were there were pretty regular like gang fights at my high school. It's a massive school. There's 2,500 kids in my graduating class. I was in high school during the Rodney King riots. Footnote, don't know who Rodney King is? Here's a news clip to catch you up to speed on what happened to Rodney King and why it instigated riots, followed immediately by recordings taken during those riots. On March 3rd, 1991, an unarmed man named Rodney King was stopped by Los Angeles police and beaten. He was clubbed 56 times. He suffered 11 skull fractures. An 81-second video of the beating taken by a bystander was released to the public. Thanks to that footage, the beating quickly drew national attention. Despite the taped evidence, the police were not found guilty of any criminal charges. After the verdict, L.A. erupted. It would prove to be the nation's worst rioting since 1965. I got up that morning, and of course I didn't watch the news. Uh, I was a teenager, and I had no idea what had happened. I was still riding the bus at that point, and there were just people lined up waiting for us to get off the bus. You know, everybody was being kind of quiet and waiting, and then 
someone hit someone and all hell broke loose, we just ran into a building and tried to lock ourselves in the classroom like we did any time a riot happened because you're you're vastly outnumbered and when the mob mentality takes over the you know, the white kids will get it first or the worst or whatever, unless it's two gangs directly going at it and they're concentrated on each other. So we stayed in the classroom and barricaded ourselves in there and got by okay for a few hours. They come around with IMPD police department officers, got everybody you know, herded. They, they kind of racially segregated everybody. Whites went into the gymnasium and blacks went into our cafeteria. After X amount of time went by, they decided they were going to put everybody back together and call in, like basically like some left-wing peace and love speakers to speak to everyone to try to calm this situation down. And another massive riot kicked off. And I got hit in the head with one of those metal circular things that you stand a flagpole up in and taken to the hospital, had staples on my head. I mean, that was all just purely like, hey, there's something on the news that's racial, and you guys are white, so you're going to pay for it. There was no personal involvement on any side, you know, these were these were people that all went to school together every day. But at a lot of inner city schools, there's a lot of these types of incidents that go on. I'm sure they go the other direction too for, for black kids that are trapped in a white school, but this was my experience as an adolescent. You know, these kids that get caught up in this bullying and in their life and stuff, you know, in high school, they don't realize that when they leave that place, the world's not gonna be anything like that. And I was certainly guilty of that. My response to that environment was just to rebel against it and came up with the conclusion that, you know, other races don't like white people. And as they increase in numbers, uh, things are going to get worse and worse for us and that something needed to be done about it. I don't think I was wrong necessarily for rebelling what was going on in that particular instance, but I took those circumstances in my mind and I applied them to the whole world. I have a good friend. Well, he's the president of my North Carolina chapter, a guy named Hussein Hill. He was a nation of Islam, black Muslim. We were talking the other day and he said, you know, the biggest problem with my old movement is this never again attitude. People people get in this camp and they see like maybe one bad thing or a hundred bad things or whatever that happens to people like them. And they take this attitude that, well, this can never happen again. And they let it control their whole life. And I think that's responsible for the for the polarization. Brian knows a lot about polarization. Anyone who knows who he is on the left thinks that he is a white supremacist in hiding, and anyone that knows about him on the right thinks that he, well, I guess probably thinks that he's a bit of a traitor. Here's a quick summary. I was running around with a crowd of kids that were into punk rock, and we were straight edge, and we had a punk rock music hall and I met skinheads there at my own local little skinhead group. I moved back to my uh, hometown for a couple years when I became 18 called the Knightstown Boys. Um, we all got in trouble in the year 2000, big trouble. Well, I was charged with murder for a guy that lived because it was a political case. I mean, I don't know how many people on earth have the paperwork in their house of, of being charged with murder for someone who's not dead, but it was a fight at a party. It was a guy who got drunk and got into it with a couple other guys. We were all skinheads except for him. He was a white guy, but he was the outsider. He showed up with some girls, and, you know, we uh, we wanted to hang out with the girls. 
him and two other guys got into it. He was asked to leave the party at one point, and he did, but I, I don't. I think he was just too drunk, and he wandered around for a while and came back to the party and hit one of the guys that he had previously been fighting on the porch, and two guys jumped. So by the time I got outside, there was about six skinheads there. Tried to break the fight up. Did, I did break the fight up. I got him up. I got him to his feet, sent him on his way. First cop shows up, takes down the story, sees it's a party to fight, no big deal. They ask us to go and sit down. About an hour later, a detective shows up. She starts asking if we're skinheads. We tell her yes. It becomes this whole thing by the time it's over. The skinheads beat this white guy up because he refused uh, to see Kyle. Footnote, see Kyle means for the win or hail my leader. It was used to call Nazis to attention and to honor Adolf Hitler. Let's take a short break brought to you by Conversations on Climate Change. Human activities, from pollution to overpopulation, are driving up the Earth's temperature and fundamentally changing the world around us. The main cause is a phenomenon known as the greenhouse effect. Gases in the atmosphere, such as water vapor, carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide, and chlorofluorocarbons, let the sun's light in, but keep some of the heat from escaping. The more greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, the more heat gets trapped, strengthening the greenhouse effect and increasing the Earth's temperature. Human activities, like the burning of fossil fuels, have increased the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere by more than a third since the Industrial Revolution. What is the cause of climate change? We don't know, and obviously scientists, uh, many scientists believe that it's human cause. Other scientists believe it's not. So if it's not human cause, then what is it? I, I have, I'm not. Uh, you know, I think it's weather patterns, frankly, and, uh, you know, and they, they change, as I said. It rained yesterday, it's a nice, pretty day today. So the climate does change. What you are experiencing is weather. Weather is what happens today. Climate is what happens over the long run. Those were three separate clips about climate change. The first was from National Geographic. The second was United States Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue. And the third was a child explaining climate change to Donald Trump. You can find those original videos on our Patreon page. What's that? You're not a patron of this podcast yet? Don't you worry. We've got you taken care of. Just go to patreon.com slash thethreadus. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash thethreadus. And take care of business. Now back to our regularly scheduled programming. I sat in jail for six months. And then they, they realized that, you know, they had absolutely no reason or way to convict me of anything. So, you know, I was acquitted. That got the attention of the larger national skinhead organization, which was dominant at the time, called the Hammerskin. There were hundreds of those guys, and uh, I got involved with them, and then we created a smaller breakaway group from them called the Outlaw Hammerskins, and we kind of had a war with that larger group for several years. In the year 2007, we released a statement where we wanted to start pulling away from that movement, and we considered that movement to be all white people are superior and all non-white people are, you know, flawed and, and evil and really like the Klan 
and the Nazi skinheads, the guys who can't go out in public and shake someone's hand of a different race, we were drawing a distinction between ourselves and them. Now, obviously, no one else from the outside looking in draws that distinction. We've got 20-some different groups together. The largest meeting of different organizations in that movement that's ever been held, as far as I know, lasted for two days. Tried to hash some things out. Couldn't really come up with anything that they would agree to. So at that point, me and my organization, and by this time I had switched the name over to the Vinlander Social Club, we started slowly pulling out of what we considered to be a movement. Over a period of time, it just came to a point where I didn't think any of it was a good idea anymore. So uh, about three or four years ago, I officially retired from the Vinlander Social Club, which is a group that I created and it still exists, and announced that I was you know, not going to have anything to do with race or any type of politics based on bias or preference or people's immutable characteristics. Brian left the Vinlander Social Club about three or four years before I met him, which is interesting because I met him under the assumption that race was actually a pretty big part of his life. In August of 2019, which was about five months ago, I had spent most of that morning on the phone with one of my BFFs trying to figure out how to convince her niece not to go to work that day. Her niece is a black woman and the city was about to turn into a wrestling match with the Proud Boys in the right wing corner and Antifa in the left wing corner. The Proud Boys is a self-confessed Western chauvinist group of white nationalists, which explains why we didn't want her niece going to work that day. They were on a mission to end domestic terrorism, which is why they came to Portland to find Antifa. Antifa is a group of anti-fascist, violent counter-protesters. Naturally, we were warned by media and by the city to stay clear of going downtown that day, which was my call to action. (laughs) Rumor had it, the two gangs would meet on the west side of the river at the waterfront. So by the time that I got down to the river, I could hear the cops yelling for people to clear the streets. So I figured I was on the right track. But before I hopped on the bridge to cross the river to get to the protests, I noticed these four, maybe five men standing in a little huddle looking across the river at the protests. They all had matching shirts on that said American Guard, which, at the risk of sounding extremely dumb, I actually thought, oh, they're in the National Guard. But that's not the National Guard, not at all. American Constitutional Nationalist is something that we apply to our group uh, specifically, the American Guard. So I walked up to them and asked if they would be willing to talk with me for a moment about where they're from and what made them want to come to Portland that day. And they all sort of just pointed me to this guy named Brian. So I spoke with him for a few minutes and then followed up with him again a couple of months later. So here's what the American Guard is in a nutshell. We have a platform that I wrote for the most part. The first pillar of it is that we respect and promote the Constitution of the United States as the highest authority of the land. The second one is just that we are nationalists. So we put America and America's interests first. We encourage people in other countries to work for those freedoms and liberties, you know, in their country. But anything we talk about, we're talking about 
for the betterment and the protection of people of the United States. Third, most of us were libertarians before we founded the group. So we believe in the libertarian principle that free citizens should be able to do whatever they like as long as they're not hurting anyone else. And the fourth pillar, which kind of defined us as leaving behind some of the the ethnic movements we were involved in. And we do have black nationalists. We do have people who are native activists, Hispanic activists. But we believe that the most promising path to restoring America to a strong, functional, and free society is to spread these principles and promote them to every citizen of the United States. So we believe in working with anyone who wants to work for our goals. At this point, I was feeling pretty clear about the organizations that Brian had either participated in or established. But I still wasn't totally clear on what his personal relationship with racism really was. So this next segment is actually from a follow-up call. Your mission is to make sure that we abide by the Constitution and that everybody who wants to abide by the Constitution can. And I guess my question is, do you think that everybody has access to abide by it in the same way? Yeah, 100%. So like 100% in a completely like cheesy, self-improvement guru type of way, I believe everyone in this country has the opportunity to, to make themselves into anything they want. Everyone. Mm-hmm. I mean, they got videos on the internet of that guy with like no arms and no legs. He's a millionaire with a beautiful wife who travels the world. I, I absolutely believe that every person gets exactly what they work for. Do you know about redlining? Redlining? I don't, I don't think so. Redlining is a system of mapping. The Federal Housing Association got together with the HOLC, the Home Owners Loan Corp, and made a map for over 200 cities, divided up into uh, sections and then graded based on whether or not it would be smart to give loans to these people living in these areas. For example, if the area got an A, then that would be a good place to offer loans. Any sections of town that were rated a C or a D, however, would find it significantly harder to be approved for a loan. By looking at these maps and the demographics of people who live in areas rated a C or a D versus an A or a B, it becomes quite clear to draw a correlation between these maps and race. The impact of those redlining maps weren't just for the FHA and the HOLC. These maps determined where doctor's offices would be established or liquor stores. It was outlawed in the 60s and 70s. At first started, I think, maybe in the 40s. But, I mean, just in 2015, there was a lawsuit in Milwaukee and maybe in Chicago as well. The Department of Housing and Urban Development had a $200 million settlement over it because the... Associated Bank was rejecting mortgage applications to Black and Latino applicants. You said that you went to Arsenal, is that right? Arsenal Tech, yeah. So I looked into that and I, you know, I heard you when you said when you were growing up, you were a minority. And where you grew up, that whole area was labeled a C or a D. So everyone in that area, including you and the people that you went to school with, were all working and functioning in a system that was discriminating against all of you. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. There's a premise there that I still 
maybe don't agree with. And that's why I say sometimes I have opinions about large groups of people that conflict heavily with, with a left-wing worldview. And it, but I don't know exactly what you said if I disagree because I, I don't have enough information. But I know sometimes people come up with, and I won't even say the left, I'll, I'll say it's just prevalent in, in this country and, and in our institution well, worldwide, Europe too. They take the results and then they say the results impact these groups in this way therefore there must be discrimination you're you're absolutely not allowed to talk about race in a negative way when it comes to a whole wide variety of issues but you are allowed to talk about race if you're saying that the same exact people under the same exact circumstances are being discriminated against so like you know if i talk about black incarceration rates and i say that's uh, uh, an example of you know, inherent black criminality. It sounds very racist. And I'm not saying that per se, but I'm saying that was what we used to say. And if the other side of the coin is true, then that will be true. And the other side of the coin is people on the left will say X amount of black people are disproportionately incarcerated. That's an example of discrimination. Well, the truth is somewhere in the middle. And if, we, if we're going to talk about one, then we got to talk about the other. Um, if, like what you're saying about the loans. There, there obviously must have been some financial factors in there, because I don't believe that our lending institutions are discriminatory, and I'll tell you why. They're more than happy to take um, people from south of the border and absolutely bend over backwards, getting them set up, getting them bank accounts, giving them loans for houses, business, everything, it's because statistically they've had a great experience with doing that, and they've made money off of it. You know, there's always it's always worth examining and finding out if someone's doing something for legitimate reasons or if someone's just being blindly discriminatory. But, I mean, I, you know, that same neighborhood you're talking about, I got a – it's a very economically depressed neighborhood, but I got a home loan for a home when I lived there, and I bought rental houses in the city even after I moved out. Um, so it wasn't like they weren't giving anyone any loans, but I know exactly what you're talking about with the ratings. Um, I've even seen stories where they take it farther and use these ratings in law enforcement, which gets real sketchy. You know, when you go to court where you come from, can be a mitigating or uh, aggravating circumstance in your bail or in your sentencing, you know, and I, and that's, I don't know if you've looked into that, but that's definitely worth looking into because that's taking it a step farther and making it even more sinister. I, I don't, I don't believe you can take a look at the results of things and then break it down by race or by gender, or by anything else. Hmm. Hindsight is twenty twenty, but I did just notice for the first time that Brian said, if I talk about black incarceration rates and I say that's an example of, you know, inherent black criminality, it sounds very racist. Um, and I'm not saying that per se. I, I don't I don't believe you can take a look at the results of things and then break it down by race or by gender, or by anything else. And in the same breath said, I've even seen stories where they take it farther and use these ratings in law enforcement, which gets real sketchy, where you come from can be a mitigating or uh, aggravating circumstance in your bail or in your sentencing. If two people commit a crime, they get arrested, they go to court, they get their sentences. Their sentences are not the same. And that is because one person is from a different part of town than the other one. That is discrimination. I wish that I had thought about that, though, during the conversation that we were having. So, Brian, if you have any follow-up thoughts on that, I would love to hear. In this next section of the conversation, 
You'll hear a series of clips from other resources as well. The first is from the Economic Policy Institute. The second is a conversation with Jordan Peterson on BBC. The third is another clip from the Economic Policy Institute, followed by an interview with WNBA commissioner and CEO taken from Fortune, rounded out with a clip from Fox News. You know, there's a lot of discussion about the same topic with like the gender pay gap. I don't believe you can always take a look at the results and say, if I don't like these results, there must be discrimination. I mean, can you think of a job where we where, where you go in and they and they say, well, we can pay women a little less? Mm-hmm. Well, what if it's not about intention as much as it is the impact? So the gender gap exists and women are making whatever, 72 cents, I think, to the dollar. Footnote. Correction, it is 79 cents. Whether the intention is ill or not, the impact needs to change. Would you agree with that? I'm not an expert on that, but I have watched like Dr. Jordan Peterson go go over it with people or whatever and have debates on it. And I mean, the thing that I took away from it was if you and I go both work at any single individual place in America, for the most part, at an entry level job, there is no pay gap. The wage gap is smaller for low wage workers likely due to the fact that we have a wage floor, namely the minimum wage that have kept wages of men and women at the bottom to be much closer than those at the middle or at the top. The pay gap comes about with a bunch of other circumstances like, you know, time off and, and, uh, and voluntary, um, you know, voluntary, like people who are willing, males were more willing to relocate, males were more willing to pick up overtime, males were more willing to take a promotion in another city, et cetera, et cetera. It seems to a lot of women that they're still being dominated and excluded, to quote your words back to you. It does seem that way, but multivariate analysis of the pay gap indicate that it doesn't exist. But that's just not true, is it? I mean, that 9% pay gap, that's a gap between median hourly earnings between men and women. That exists. Yeah, but there's multiple reasons for that. One of them is gender, but it's not the only reason. Like, if you're a social scientist worth, worth your salt, you never do a univariate analysis. Like you say, well, women in aggregate are paid less than men. Okay, well, then we break it down by age. We break it down by occupation. We break it down by interest. We break it down by personality. In my experience in the workforce, I haven't noticed those things falling along gender lines as as much as, I mean, people who are willing to do whatever the hell they have to do are always the ones that get ahead across the board. It's also clear from a deep look at the data that Women can't simply educate themselves out of the gender wage gap. Not only are women now more educated than men, they have higher rates of college completion and um, advanced education, the gender wage gap actually widens at higher levels of educational attainment. The average salary for a WNBA player is 75,000. The average salary for an NBA player is 6.3 million? I've never worked in an industry with a lot of women, to tell you the truth, because I do telecom, you know, blue collar, outdoor type of work. But, and I did sales work. And in the sales work, the men and women were equally advancing and equally willing to do whatever it took. But his explanations were that it all had to do with the choices people made after they had the job. 
Um, and, and I thought that sounded pretty, pretty sound. Unless you're talking about high-level CEOs or entertainers or, or something where people make a lot of money, I think it sounds pretty disingenuous when I hear the argument being made. And also, you know, what HBO is saying is that uh, in the past, maybe they have engaged in inappropriate pay disparity. Isn't that illegal? That is illegal. You know, my first reaction to this story was, good for you, HBO. What year is it? It's 2018. There should be no inappropriate disparities in pay. There should be no workplace discrimination because wage discrimination has been illegal since 1963. The Equal Pay Act and, of course, the Civil Rights Act protect women in this country from wage discrimination. Those are things we have to celebrate. We shouldn't get too worried about Equal Pay Day because every day in the U.S. should be Equal Pay Day. Absolutely. And it's really interesting that uh, celebrities and high-profile people in entertainment get behind this holiday when, in fact, there's huge disparity in entertainment and particularly in film. That's right. Some of the most high profile cases we see of, uh, you know, what looks like wage discrimination, at least, take place in show business in Hollywood. Of course, there's going to be market factors that drive those disparities. um, But Hollywood has a lot to answer for here. They, They aren't really the model for equal pay. No, they're not. Uh, they, they do make tons of money and it makes for an interesting story. But even Hillary Clinton didn't pay the women in her Senate office as much as she paid the men. Are we making headway? Yes, in some ways. And women need to be more assertive in asking for pay raises and making sure they stand up and advocate for themselves. But as you've said, it's a very complex issue. And thank you so much for laying out the case. Hadley Heath Manning, thanks again. Do you know about the Japanese internment camps in the 40s? A little bit. Just, uh, you know, what's funny, the most of, most of what I heard was uh, when Howard Stern used to have the guy from Star Trek on the show. <laughs> but they talked they talk in depth about it. It sounds like you have at least a basic knowledge of it. But just to put us on the same page, if you were a Japanese American living on the West Coast, then your assets were frozen and people showed up to your house to take you and your family away to live in an internment camp for four years. Yeah. I am not Japanese, but let's pretend for sake of conversation that I am. And for those four years, my grandfather couldn't actually work at all because he was in an internment camp. Does that put me at a disadvantage? It puts you behind for sure. But it doesn't put you out of the running. I'm with you, uh, that, but you got to assign a, a weight to things and a value to things. And sometimes it's more positive to, to, you know, all the time. It's more positive to tell people, I understand what's going on, but the pathway out of this is not victimhood because victimhood doesn't doesn't produce any results. You know, you gotta you gotta you gotta suck it up and move forward. And that's the, and everybody makes that out to be some ugly thing to say when you're saying it to certain people under certain circumstances. But I don't know what what's your you bring that up as an example. But what's the solution for all, how much weight should we be assigning that, or what should we be doing about that at this stage in time? Yeah, I mean, I I think as it correlates to modern discrimination, like we were talking about with a pay gap or something. I think it's first and foremost important to recognize that a commitment to working hard is not the only factor that shapes one person's ability to succeed. And that some people are, in fact, working from 
a disadvantaged point from the start. But isn't it the most important or you wouldn't even say that? What do you mean? Working hard, being motivated, taking risks. What are, do you believe those are the most important factors in whether or not you make it? Or do you believe the discriminating factors are the most important? No, I think that the most important thing is that you're willing to step up to the plate. Okay. I just think that a lot of people are willing to step up to the plate and do work just as hard, if not harder, than a lot of other people who maybe are in a position that is more stable. And it's easy to just sort of shrug our shoulders, I think, and, and turn a blind eye to that and say, well, they don't want it bad enough. But that is a disservice to the reality. We'll take one more break for the environment, and then Brian will share his perspective on what we can do to become a less polarized nation. According to Reuters, Bishop Marcelo Sanchez Sarando, who leads the Pontifical Academy of Sciences, recently said that a withdrawal from the Paris Accord would not only be a disaster, but completely unscientific. He added, Saying that we need to rely on coal and oil is like saying that the earth is not round. It is an absurdity dictated by the need to make money. Hello, I'm John Coleman, founder of the Weather Channel, original weatherman on Good Morning America, and a TV meteorologist for 55 years. We have records that go back for 300 million years and more. We see interglacial periods, life is good, and ice ages when we almost all perish. The burning of fossil fuels didn't cause any of those. The polar bear population, it's expanding rapidly, and there are more polar bears than there were in 1970. There isn't any climate crisis. It was totally manufactured by scientists who got linked to the radiative forcing formula, which they had received billions of dollars to, to uh, develop and try to prove. So I think we can go right ahead with our very good lifestyle our modern society, we can even power Las Vegas and continue with life. But this is a challenge that does not pause for partisan gridlock. It demands our attention now. If you look at our history, don't bet against American industry. Don't bet against American workers. Don't tell folks that we have to choose between the health of our children or the health of our economy. The old rules may say we can't protect our environment and promote economic growth at the same time, but in America, we've always used new technologies. We've used science. We've used research and development and discovery to make the old rules obsolete. The division. I mean, I think, I think we're polarized, and I think it's getting worse, and I think it's dangerous. The more courageous people are being heard rather than the smarter people and rather than, you know, the, the salt-of-the-earth people who are making this country, you know, go around every day are being quiet. I mean, I think what you're doing is great. you got to have the courage to stand up to anything and anyone that you think is wrong. I mean, you got to have the humility to, to, to temper it and back down if necessary, but I, I think there's a severe lack of courage amongst the majority of the population. I'm also, I'm also kind of into like self-help stuff. Gratitude is huge. 
I, I am a believer in the philosophy that gratitude and negativity can't live in the same spot. So I personally work on that a lot. It, it sounds, uh, you know, when you first hear about manifestation or any of that stuff, especially if you're a right-wing masculine guy, it sounds a little goofy. But as soon as you put it into practice, you find out that if you start thinking about the positive things and the things you have to be thankful for, it just makes your entire life go a lot smoother. It starts to cause transformations inside of you that are, that are very positive. I think more people need to go out and engage. You know, the very vocal minorities on either side of, of any issue, you know, they're afraid people are going to shout them down or, or call up their employer or whatever. There's probably this big 80-90% wedge that I would consider in the middle and only 5-10% on each side. I think they need to take back some control of politics and social issues. You know, the people who are just going to work every day taking care of their family need to take a more active role we put the narrative and the, and the decision making back in the hands of more people, you know, all the, all the media in the United States is owned by like five companies or something. So that's a problem. And then anybody spends an hour on the internet figures out that there's a very small amount of people in this country who are driving the vast majority of the conversations. But I meet people every day on the street who are good. They have a good heart. I think they have good ideas and they're not, they're not stepping one toe in that water. And I think that needs to, I think that needs to be fixed. Martin Luther King says, The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands in times of challenge and controversy. For the first couple decades of Brian James's life, comfort and convenience were shaped by white supremacist and white nationalist groups who exercised their power at the expense of the humanity in other people. But he has also disrupted the patterns of white supremacy in his cohort. He's taken ownership in controversy and stood up for what he believed in, even though it actually went against everything that everyone knew about him. He's not confound to his own echo chambers. He shifts gears when his experiences give him a reason to. I'll close out with an excerpt from a post that I read on the blog for The American Guard. If you are reading this, and you are a white nationalist or someone who can't tolerate gays, take a moment and ask yourself, does a gay man like Milo gain anything by supporting this? Why is he out here fighting for your rights and equal treatment? He voluntarily threw himself under the bus with haters and white supremacists to attend this event. 99% of the straight white people you know do not have the courage to do that. On that same note, the people who aren't white that show up to Patriot events get shit from all sides. They are complete outcasts, except for when they are in the company of other constitutional nationalists. Show them a little respect in class, no matter what your personal preferences are. Signed, Brian James, National President of the American Guard. It's safe to say that I will at most have two or three listeners on this podcast that are white nationalists. And those two or three likely won't be listening to me, they'll be listening for Brian. So for me to directly address them is sort of a joke, at least for right now, as we all evolve 
beyond the knowledge gaps of divide that we face right now, so too will be the types of media that we listen to, and that will be good. For Brian, though, he's addressing people that were at the same event that he was at, his cohort, his peers, the people he respects, the people who respect him, and he's calling them out, which is something that I certainly don't have access to do. So I hope that you take his advice and perhaps combine it with the advice from Martin Luther King, from Rachel Cargill, and from Bobby Kennedy. In times of challenge and of controversy, engage, not only with those that you feel comfortable with, but those that you perhaps might have drawn a line of allyship in front of before listening to this episode. And when you do, you have a choice. You can take the path of anger and hatred, but you will continue to have to take that path for a very long time. Taking the path of connection and vulnerability and forgiveness will feel more challenging. But we have to make an effort in the United States. We have to make an effort to understand to get beyond or go beyond these rather difficult times. My favorite poet was Aeschylus. He once wrote, even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own day despair, against our will, comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness, but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another and a feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or whether they be black. Huge thanks to Brian James for his willingness to engage and chat with me. The musical genius that you hear on this podcast is thanks to Tyler Thompson of Studio 110 in Carnegie, Pennsylvania. Featuring Jeff Leonard, the final closing song is written by Brad Parsons. Thank you to the believers and the curious and the leaders who put their dollar behind their belief that we will have a less divided, more united tomorrow. If you believe that too, or you want to believe it, or you just like this podcast and find it interesting, leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to this podcast on would be incredibly helpful. Also incredibly helpful is to become a patron. Our Patreon page offers the opportunity for a $2 subscription, $5 subscription, a $9 subscription. Those monies go to our research team and our production team, editors, our interviewers, and those monies also go to hiring people for all of those roles because right now, it's just me. Okay, people, keep up the good work out there. We'll see you next time. I don't care where you're from or what you believe. So you got a heart Anybody needs
sometimes hope feels like it's covered in a dream. But even the darkest night can't hide everything. Some say isn't actually a word.